friends, Renee from Of Collective Big Stick Energy Podcast coming at you for episode 46. Pretty wild. We're on 46 now. It's been over a year talking on the internet and I don't really know how we got here, but here we are. I first and foremost want to offer a trigger warning for this week's episode, just because we are going to talk about mental health, we are going to openly discuss suicide and PTSD and anxiety, like anything there that if that might trigger you, then here is your warning and you can make the decision for yourself if you would like to continue or not or have a warning that you might need to stop at points in this episode. Our guest today is John Padilla. He made a movie last year called The Mountain in My Mind. And his goal is to increase visibility, awareness, and just really encourage people to have more open conversations about mental health in the ski industry. And we're going to get into how you can help do that as well in this episode and some tips and tricks and really pay attention to the icebreaker that he offers because I think that's a, a really good way that we could all just talk to people that we know or that we don't know and really ask them how they are doing for real not just how are you doing how are you doing for real and not be too intrusive about it so I will let John kind of introduce himself and and there's a lot of things we do talk about relating to making the movie and his inspiration behind making the movie I think this is a really important episode and a really important discussion and and something that can't be understated in the ski industry and outdoor industry and just adrenaline extreme sports in general because you really can't talk enough about this stuff right now and we're trying to decrease the stigmas. Um, in the show notes, there are some resources. If you or anyone that you know is struggling and needs help or, or wants to reach out to somebody, there will be a couple of phone numbers or websites that they can visit and, and see if there's anything that, that um, they might find helpful there. Um, Love you all and thanks for listening. If you're on social media and in the ski industry, then you know there's been a lot of drama around transceiver recalls in the last year. Uh, this is because you need a piece of equipment that is guaranteed to work out there. There's not going to be malfunctions. It's one of the most critical pieces of any backcountry kit. So you need to find something that actually works. I'm really stoked that we have the opportunity to partner with Memmut because their Barry Vox S is one of the most capable and high-performing beacons on the market. It outperforms year after year against other pro-level transceivers in range and its ability to differentiate between beacons and multi-burial situations. The bang for buck is 100% worth it with this transceiver, it's honestly the gold standard on the market for reliability and performance. Head to www.mammut.com and use the code OUTOF25 for 25% off eligible products. Stay safe out there, my dudes. Winter is coming and I am excited to be doing some camping in my partner's Go Fest Camper pop-up canopy tent. So we need to get our winter kit ready and that means I have to have some uh, basics in there. One of them is my rumple blanket. 
You don't know how cold it's going to get. It's good to have that extra uh, layer of warmth when you get back from ski touring and you're going to camp out for the night. And the other one is the Pactel. Uh, just makes like cleanup easy if I want to like wash my face afterwards. Um, in the summer, if you want to jump into a lake after mountain biking, you're just ready to go. It's lightweight. And on top of that, Rumpel does a really good job of prioritizing sustainability, durability, and also just a cute blanket that you can take with you. Um, they make all of their blankets with the same technical materials in premium outdoor gear and active wear. Uh, they want to introduce the world to better blankets, but also with sustainability, they recycle over 5 million plastic water bottles a year and offset their carbon footprint significantly. They're weather resistant and most importantly, cozy. Um, they're good for the outdoors, the couch, like I said, they're staple in my kit. If you want to jump on it and, uh, grab one for yourself, head to their website and use the code out of bounds for 15% off eligible products. The right balaclava or face mask can complete your kit when you're out on the mountain. And it's something that I love to add to my monochrome fit. So I always look for a company that offers heaps of graphics, patterns, and styles, but I also love to prioritize sustainability and functionality in my brand choice. And Functionware kind of meets all of that criteria. They develop products to be functional, sustainable, and fashionable. They have a huge array of graphics and patterns, so it means you can pick the right one for you. Uh, their sustainability is what really sticks out to me, though. On average, they recycle about six bottles in each of their products. They reduce their water consumption by 50,000 gallons through recycling, and in 2021, they diverted 10,000 pounds of scrap plastic from landfills. That's a pretty big deal. Um, if you want to check out this array of buffs, balaclavas, headbands, all that jazz to get you ready for the season, head to their website, www.functionwear.com and use the code out of bounds for 10% off. Check it out. That's it for ads for this week. So episode 46, John Padilla is dropping in three, two, one. John, do you want to like, um, introduce yourself quickly? Kind of tell everybody who you are. Uh, I don't know the, the elevator pitch. Yeah. Yeah. I can definitely do that. Um, my name is John Padilla. I am the director fundraiser kind of coordinator behind mountain in my mind, which is a ski film all about mental health. Um, and the things that can kind of lead people to suicide. And so I lost my brother when to suicide when he was 15 years old and kind of made a total life change, decided not to go to medical school and started a nonprofit that quickly grew. And yeah, so now um, I just kind of focus on suicide prevention, uh, mental health, and I've been a lifelong skier. I grew up doing competitions and then in college at Montana State University, I skied like well over 100 days every year and just um, kind of fell in with a lot of film crews and started hanging out with uh, those folks. So, yeah. Word. Sorry, there was a bit of a delay there. I like couldn't find my mouse to press the button that I needed to press. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, but what are you studying? I want to know that too. Yeah. So for undergrad, I have a couple degrees. Um, I got degrees in cell bio, neuroscience, and interdisciplinary honors. So basically like writing and speaking. And then I took um, nine months off to make this movie in between graduating um, and then went back for graduate school. So I'm doing, it's called MSIM, which is a total mouthful. I like to think of it, we'd we've been told to tell people it's basically an accelerated MBA in leadership and innovation. 
So that's a long-winded way of saying um, I'm basically studying how you come in and kind of switch up corporate cultures um, and make them be a little bit more mission-focused. So that's a total swerve from I was not expecting that. Like, Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is a huge, it is. So the program's pretty, it's pretty sweet. I'm. It's at, like I said, Montana State University up in Bozeman. Um, and basically we are all, with the exception of about three people in the program, we're all from STEM backgrounds, STEM backgrounds. So we, it's super interdisciplinary and kind of the goal is to take what you've learned in your undergrad and then combine it with a bunch of high level business knowledge and then go in and like shake up structures related to your undergrad. So like for me, for example, a job option that I could have would be going into a hospital and kind of um, shaking up their their culture, maybe redoing some of the, like their leadership structures, their um, their practices, that sort of thing. So it's kind of more uh, interdisciplinary focus, kind of dipping into two pools. Okay, you want to know what I was just thinking? If you need a project, can you do Womb Tang? Because we need help. <laughs> we need to shake up our internal leadership structure because it grew so fast it turned into a dumpster fire and now we're trying to figure it out oh well we're i can definitely there. i can definitely help out a little bit and i have a bunch of like at least information and starting points like books that you can listen to on audible if you don't have time to read them just on your way to work that like literally are life-changing yeah down i'm like um I don't know. My autistic ass is not very good at leading people, apparently, but we're figuring it out. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, we. that's really interesting that you pivoted. Um, what – I think, like, the concept of, like, culture and helping environment, is that impacted by your history with your, your brother and, like, your experience at all? Yeah, absolutely. So the reason kind of for that was, for me um, – I also wanted to grow, like scale up my nonprofit and go uh, fully national and then hopefully international with it. So it was, for me, it was not only shaking up like other companies' cultures, because I'm obviously going to have to build that rapport before I can come in and have people want to listen to me. So, but the end goal is really to figure out how I shake up my own nonprofit structure um, and then do scale it up. Because right now we operate in Montana and Colorado, and I would really, really love to push that out across the country, at least at the bare minimum, the Mountain West, and then kind of push into mountain towns um, all over North America and then hopefully into South America too. Okay. What is your nonprofit? Let's let's talk about this for a minute. Yeah. Yeah, you, absolutely. Please explain what it is. And yeah, I'll ask questions yeah. after that. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, my nonprofit's called Jack Strong 17, named after my brother Jack. Um, and we are focused on specifically teen suicide prevention. So we do, we've done a litany of things, but everything generally falls under awareness. Um, so we've done, uh, we passed a bill, it's called House Bill 1222, I believe. Um, and that was in the Colorado legislature. The, I don't know the bill number because we it, had it amended to be informally named or formally named Jack and Kate's Law in honor of Jack that like establishes um, common practices for uh, bullying situations in schools um, on the K through 12 level um, and creates a shareholder group. We've done, I've led school walkouts at 
um, the largest school, public high schools in Colorado. Um, we also provide platforms and connections to put teenagers on the news, to put teenagers in front of um, their state legislatures so that they can like really make their voices heard. Um, and as a you know, 13, 14 year old, you don't really have the, even any clue where to start with something like that, but you have all these thoughts and emotions. Um, and it's my belief that we really have to listen to the the stakeholders that we're making rules and laws and decisions on, like we need to have their voices at the table. Um, so that's part of the platform creation for them. Um, some of the other things we've done is uh, we worked with Bark Technologies, which is a really cool app. Um, you should go check that out, especially parents. It is uh, a monitoring software that picks up on their kids' phones if they mention anything about a suicidal thought or a suicidal ideation. Um, and it sends a ping to the parent's phone and then provides them with a list of resources of how to have a conversation with your kid, um, local resources, and it's, it's saved a ton of lives. Um, we made a documentary with them that was based on social media and we did um like my my role in the film was i interviewed a group of five teenage boys and asked them like all the questions a teenage boy does not want to be asked and um really awkward stuff and we made it into a feature-length documentary that's on youtube that's called childhood 2.0 i think it has like over three million views right now um so we worked with a really awesome production company um to kind of make that happen and then um yeah, we've done a lot of other stuff outside of that too. Uh, we haven't quite announced it yet, but by the time this comes out, it will be announced. Uh, but we also created a scholarship fund um, for students of color who are looking to go into mental health professions or underrepresented communities who are looking to become mental health professionals um, because there's a huge barrier for entry there. And we really need practitioners and therapists, counselors, et cetera, that, um, there's tons of studies and science that's shown that we respond a lot better to, and we're able to open up more to folks that we're able to identify with. So we've got that scholarship created. That's going to be in Denver Public School. So, uh, and it's called the Jack Jack Padilla Memorial Scholarship after my brother. So that's just kind of some of the stuff that we do. Um, like I said, mainly we do kind of platform creation um, and. <clears throat> organizing events, walkouts to try and get schools to change policy, um, lobbying Congress, that sort of thing. That's sick. Yeah, there's a lot of really cool things there. I, th I think one thing that really struck me is getting these teenagers speaking in front of others because these are people who are not old enough yet to vote, but their yeah. problems are real problems, right? Yeah, absolutely. How else do they make their voice heard if they don't have a voice yet? Um, via the voting sphere, then they have to make their voices heard in another way. And most commonly, we see teens turn to social media. And that's great. But I, the reach is really limited. And their politicians are not following them on social media or seeing their content. So it's important that we do get them in front of the people that are able to make choices and decisions that do, like you said, ultimately affect um, these teenagers' lives. 100%. And I think like... Um... The, the documentaries and stuff you're doing as well, where you're asking teenage boys all those uncomfortable questions, like it ties into um, some of the the skiers that you that were in your your movie, too. So I feel like I'm like dropping the movie, but um, they uh, you know, it's like I wish I could have just talked about it. I wish I didn't like hide what was happening. And that's one of the biggest aspects of, of suicide is like you don't have anybody to relate to. Nobody knows what's happening. And a lot of the time the people that you 
that do commit suicide that you lose to suicide, you have no idea that they're suffering. They're very good at masking it. Absolutely. Um, yeah, there's actually a line in the film um, that says something to the degree of like those um, those who smile the most are usually suffering the deepest um, because it is it becomes a coping mechanism to make sure that um, you look okay on the outside. And a lot of times those are like super empath people that <clears throat> are used to looking out for others. And I think that they end up lapsing on looking out for themselves. A hundred percent. Kind of like sidebar statistic that you might find interesting and maybe a group that your organization could also advocate for are undiagnosed autistic people. Um, really? So the suicide rates, I sorry, I found out I said prevalence wrong. Renee, how do I say it? Prevalence? Yes. Prevalence rates? Pardon <laughs> Thumbs me. up from John on <laughs> prevalence. <laughs> so um, the, the suicide prevalence rates among autistic youth are 70% higher than neurotypical youth. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Are the average life expense expectancy of um, an autistic person in a recent study that I looked at was 33 years old due to suicide. And a lot of it has to do with masking um, your autistic traits, not feeling like you belong, being bullied for your autistic traits. And if you are an undiagnosed autistic person, which was my experience, your entire youth, childhood, everything teaches you that you're, you're, you're fucked, you're flawed, you don't belong, you're not normal. And you need to try and be like everybody else around you. And it's like, it's it's really shocking. Like the level of like ideation um, from actual like attempts to success, it is like significantly higher than the neurotypical population. Um, that's that's terrifying. That's a statistic, and I don't I don't want to rattle off because I don't have this one memorized. But um, that <clears throat> I know that the the rate for um, LGBTQ plus communities, um, that rate's also significantly higher um, than it is for the general population. But then also knowing that, the suicide rate in ski towns, we literally, the, the Rocky Mountains, you guys have a different name that nobody ever talks about. We live in what are called the suicide belt. And it's all these, all these mountain communities that kind of have you know beautiful resorts or great skiing great backcountry access whatever it may be that there's actually a paradise paradox there and typically there's not a large enough population to support a mental health worker and pre-covid there was no option really for online therapy and now that that's starting to increase more but um there's plenty of data that remains to be discovered on the effectiveness um, related to traditional in-person therapies um and then also just the stigma that exists in ski towns um I think is another factor that is underlying behind that statistic is that people are afraid to talk about it and just don't want to put themselves out there for fear that in their small town, they'll receive a label on, they'll have to operate and live their lives under that label. Um, and I think that that can be really, especially as like a teenager, I think back when I was a teenager, like there's, you don't want to do anything to stand out or to be different. Like you just want to fit in and kind of, you know, like just fit in with everybody. And I think that that's like also really alarming. And that was part of the reason that we did decide to make the film was I've, I've lost tons of friends. I've plus my, my only brother. Um, and I've, I just don't want to see it happen at all. And my, right now I can focus on ski towns cause I'm kind of uniquely situated in Bozeman. And I've, I know a lot of the ski folks, the community has been really supportive and it's, you guys would just be astounded at the amount of people that have reached out for this film just to do whatever they can, or to just even just be like, listen, 
after premieres like i can barely keep up with the dms because people are like that this person in the film like her story i went through almost the exact same thing and i want her to know that what she's the fact that she's able to talk about x y or z is just incredible um so yeah yeah. you know i think like um i mean renee and i are best friends and one of the biggest bonding things for us was that we have similar trauma and we both really struggle with mental health. Like, um, she mentioned that she has anxiety. I, um, found out I was autistic last year at 28 years old. I have ADHD, complex PTSD and generalized anxiety disorder. So I'm just a little bucket of fun, you know, it's just like, <laughs> woo, let's go. Um, therapy is my best friend. Couldn't function well with my ADHD medication. And now that I know I'm autistic, I'm totally comfortable with being my weird little self. Let your freak flag fly. But my life has been traumatic as fuck. And, um, I don't know the more people that I've opened up to, or I've talked to the one thing that kind of connects everybody is that nothing about life is easy. Everybody feels like an oddball from time to time. And the fact that people pretend to be, you know, okay and feel that they need to pretend to feel they're okay, it, it, it requires analyzing social and cultural structures that we have and why they think that's the case. Because we're all struggling at the end of the day. Nobody's perfectly normal. Um, and like even through COVID, that was a collective trauma that all of us have shared. So we can always find something to, to bond over. I think it's more like training on uh, how to respond to something like that it's not natural how to like validate somebody's feelings how to let them have space to to express themselves like that's even something i've had to kind of get my boyfriend comfortable with because i'm an emotional dumpster fire like he's just got to deal with it and i also need very literal communication so i need to know exactly what's happening i can't tell the difference between tired and um angry it's like i need him to tell me what's going on then and there and he's never had to talk about his feelings like that before and for him like just being told that like your feelings aren't bad they don't have to make sense they're valid they're here that's okay it's like we can sit in that it doesn't mean anything it's okay and like there's just that shit should be normal and it's really sad that society and culture have taught people that it's not especially young people yeah i absolutely agree with you you also made me kind of think when you talked about your boyfriend um specifically like men and boys i think are taught from a super young age um so there's the statistic on it is basically uh out of 10 suicides seven will be by males and three will be by females so it is statistically significant there um and i i think part of the reason for that is like um having been a and still i'm a 24 year old man and it's like i had a conversation with my buddy today who I've spent the better part of six months trying to see it to get him to see a therapist. And he just said, I don't know. I, I don't need that. I can go work out. And I'm like, dude, the workout will only get you so far. Like that's just part of it. Okay. Renee and I, therapy is fucking hot. Okay. I don't care who you were attracted to. Therapy is hot. You want to know what's not hot? Being a gym bro and ignoring your mental health. Like when a guy tells me he's not even therapy, a gym bro. Like, okay, not I even think, a gym bro. I'm like I trashing we're the gym bros, but I'm skiing. like, go to therapy, work your mind. Like, damn. Because we're talking about <laughs> skiing, and I think that skiing is something that people absolutely use to cover things up. And, like, oh, I think that's, that's also, like, part of why you – I mean, you can confirm or deny this, but part of why you have this special interest in ski towns and ski culture and 
and the adrenaline that one gets from mountain biking, skiing, these type of feats and, and objectives and, and like outdoor sports that we do that are kind of extreme sports. Like you get a rush of endorphins, you get that adrenaline when you ski a sick line and you're having a great day with your friends. It makes you forget all your problems for a minute, but they're still there when you get home. It can be a great coping mechanism, but it, it isn't the be all end all. Like it's not going to fix you. And I know like for myself, the year that I skied 140 days, like my big, like fuck off from school and not sure what I was going to do with my life quite yet year was the year that I was also forced to confront my mental health and that I actually realized that I did have something that was going on and it was a lot deeper than anything I could have imagined. And it was when I first reached out for treatment because I just realized I was in a state that it wasn't sustainable and I wasn't happy and skiing couldn't fix it for me and I think that that's a really important thing to recognize is like you could be a gym bro and and deal with it as a gym bro or you can be a skier and try and deal with it as a skier but that's that's not it and it only will last you so long yeah absolutely it's not sustainable I like to think of it as like going skiing I don't one area of skiing that I see um mental illness particularly prevalent in, and this is just totally my observations there's no stats behind this is like ski mountaineering um because you push your body to total extremes it's like this winter equivalent of ultra marathoning and then you add in this aspect of if you fall there's a significant chance that you will die and i think that that's kind of this mask that we pull over that really is just covering the problems that lie beneath and it, it like you said it, you can live in the moment while you're skiing and doing all these things and that's really great distraction but it's a distraction and that's where we have to do better i think as as a ski community of saying Hey, listen, why, dude, why do you want to go do this 16 mile tour today? And when you haven't been feeling well, like your wife or your girlfriend's mad at you and you've got all these other things going on, why do you want to go take this escape? And I think you're going to have so much better of a time and reach a further potential as an athlete. If you're able to identify really what's behind that mask, because then you don't need the mask at all. And you can breathe a lot freer without a a mask, you know, how do we get, how do we get people to like. I guess, I mean, it doesn't matter if you're like whatever gender you identify with, like it is a prevalent thing, but there definitely is a tie to those behaviors and masculinity in the mountains. Um, If you ever wanted to analyze this from like a sociological or anthropological perspective, you should read Feminisms Matter. Um, It's a really good book that analyzes how these different systems and structures within popular culture teach men that these behaviors are the appropriate way to kind of interact with each other and like find their position in society and relate to society. So, um, yeah, the, that hyper-masculinity, not talking about feelings, all that kind of stuff, it is woven into our culture and it's what they're taught. These are not things that you were born with. And I think that's something that people need to understand. Um, and it can be, uh, kind of those, those, cultural norms can be validated and reinforced in echo chambers where masculinity is dominated. And that happens in spaces like the ski industry and an outdoor culture. So if you analyze those concepts, it actually becomes very clear that this is like a societal problem and it is a patriarchal problem and it is tied to masculinity and 
yeah, basically pushing down your shit, not dealing with it. But it's interesting when you analyze all the facets and how they operate together. Um, but yeah, like I, I can think of so many dudes that I know that 120% do that. It's like, just push it down. going to go do another gnarly objective. Like, don't need to talk about my feelings. And like, when I'm like, was it fun? They're like, no, it sucked. And I was like, then why did you do it? They're like, no, like it was sick, but it like, it sucked. I was like, and my question is, is what? that a safe-scoring <laughs> partner to have? Like, that's a, like, reflection. Well, if you've, taken an av- yeah, if you've taken an avalanche class, you know the answer is no. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's but just, I, like, a little reflection. It's <laughs> <laughs> a, a good point. Um, I, yeah, that's, that's a really good point. I, and to answer your question, Tori, too, that you kind of brought up, like, how do we change that i think that it's the that was part of the reason why we did want to bring in some high profile male professional skiers into this film um to really inspire the next generation to see that these superstar athletes that they all look up to that there is more behind the scenes and that it's actually really cool that you get to see that person behind the scenes and that they're real people too and despite being incredible athletes that they've all had to overcome something and maybe they're overcoming something now. Um, but I think that p- giving those folks a platform to inspire others and then encouraging people in the community at all levels to just be really open with each other. So a challenge that I've been telling people um, at the premieres that I have for them is throughout the season to talk to two random strangers on the lift and ask them tough questions about mental health on the ski lift or a backcountry touring partner and to just send us in an email submission or a DM and tell me what, how the conversation went. And I'm not going to post it anywhere. It's just the act of them doing that. And if they tell two more people to do that, it becomes pretty infectious fairly quickly. Okay. This just might be because I'm autistic, but how do you even start a conversation like that with a stranger? Like I've like totally like dumped stuff before and like I have a hard time with boundaries and understanding what I should and should not talk to you, but being told to do that without it naturally happening, I would, I like, hi, Karen, when have you been depressed in your life? And then she just look at me and she's there with her husband, Bob. And they're like, I'm about to go ski this blue run on my rental skis. What is your problem? Millennials today. Like I can just see it going that way, but what are some icebreakers? Sorry, that could be... Oh, no, <laughs> absolutely. I know. I was laughing too hard. I didn't want to mess up the audio. Um, no, I agree with you. That is like, that's a super valid question of like, how do you get that conversation started? Um, I think that that involves being open yourself. And it's not saying to go do this, like you say to the, you know, Karen and Bob with their rental skis, really looking at like, the skier that you've been seeing in the lift line every every weekend for the last like three years, but you never said anything to them. You sat on the lift with them. Maybe you've had that casual conversation. Um, that's when it's time to take it to the next level. And like a really good icebreaker um, <clears throat> that I like to use is uh, basically asking someone, what's the coolest thing you've ever done in your life? And what's the hardest thing you've ever been through? And nine times out of 10, you can take what's the hardest thing you've ever been through and start to digest that a little bit. So if you were to ask me, what's the coolest thing in your life? What's the hardest thing you've ever been through? I'd say the coolest thing in my life has probably been um, making this ski movie, honestly, and getting to meet all these people and seeing the conversation evolve. What's the hardest thing I've ever been through? I lost my brother to suicide. 
And then right there, typically people will kind of shell up just a little bit. And that's when I start, you got to lead by example. So if you want them to tell you something, you got to be willing to put yourself out there too. So that's when I would start to say who Jack was and um, the lessons that I've learned and why his his passing hasn't gone unnoticed and how, how much has come out of that. And I think that that's where um, you can kind of have an opportunity to ice break. And I, it's, it comes more naturally than you think. And I'm hoping that lots and lots of people see the movie this year and that that's a conversation that's just a little bit more accepted on the ski lift or, you know, in the car ride up with some of your friends on the way to the, you know, car pulling up to the mountain or on the skin track, whatever it may be, that that just does become a, a candid idea or a candid conversation that you can have with someone. And I also think that you know, not, not so much strangers with this, but really with our friends and our family, um, that we have a duty to ask the folks that seem like they're struggling the least um, and that are the happiest to ask them the hard questions. Um, one of the most important questions that I firmly, firmly believe can save a life, and it's this is all from my own experience and things that I wish that I had done um, or that I think could have um, made a difference in my life and Jack's life, uh, is just asking asking someone who, you know, is always smiling, always smiling, but then you might not hear from after 10 p.m. and because they're just, they, their battery, their social battery dies off, to just ask them, have you ever had suicidal thoughts? Those, those four or five words can, I, I firmly believe, save a life. Because a lot of times, I think our friends and family are just hoping we ask. And they don't know how, like you say, to have the conversation. Yeah. And maybe I can like inter interject here because I, I work in the emergency room as a nurse. I've had to ask many people this question. And it was really hard for me to ask at first because it, it is something that seems so invasive to ask someone and it's kind of awkward and there also is a part of you that's like okay well if they say yes then how do I react to that and so it, I, I think there is like that's where people get standoffish about it and and it is really important if someone is in a really bad state to ask them that and then the next questions that I usually ask just like purely and I can frame it as like, I am just concerned for you. I'm concerned for your safety. I'm trying to make this environment safe for you is do you have a plan and do you have access to that plan? And I know that's like all really hard things to ask, but those are like the two follow-up questions that can really like key you into how far along someone is on those thoughts because you can have passive thoughts and that's the first place where, where someone can maybe recognize that they need some help. Um, but once it gets into those like more active places, that's when you know, like, okay, we definitely need to get you some resources, but it's really, really hard to ask that question at first when you've never asked it before. You don't know what the resources are to guide someone to, I think is a really good point as well is like, what do you do if someone says yes? Yeah, I think like the the context that you shared, like those are valid questions. And I think if somebody's in a crisis, that would definitely be like the number one way to approach it. Because like I'm in dialectal behavioral therapy and uh, I it's been like it was for neurotypical people. Like that's the way that it's structured. But my therapist actually since like I saw her in July now has two other late diagnosed autistic 
females um, who also have ADHD. And she found this book. It's called uh, Dialectal Behavioral Skills for ADHD. ADHD autistic people and it was written by somebody who has the same neurotype as me and it's built for me to build skills and plans around that kind of stuff but dialectal behavioral therapy is used frequently for treating borderline personality disorder and suicidal ideation to develop plans like that um, so if they are in crisis that's how you could approach it but when it comes to not approaching somebody who's in a crisis and in like uh, a close conversation like that I think that like some other skills would probably help validate them and respond to it. And like, John, do you have any tips on that? Like if this is a, a casual conversation that comes up with people you're close with? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there is a form of training called QPR. Are you guys familiar with QPR training? Um, it is. No, sorry, it's, I it's, should it's, probably it's, answer there. No, we're it's, not. <laughs> no, it's like, it's like CPR but for folks in crisis um, and it's as a, as a friend for, for me to kind of ground you and to, to not push further at that point, because a lot of times just admitting that you have had that suicidal thought is like one of the most emotionally taxing things you'll ever do in your life. And even, even if you're not suicidal, like just admitting that you have felt this depression for your life. So like, I'll, I'll give an example that is, was me. Um, I, when I was diagnosed with uh, MDD, major depressive disorder, I was, I believe, 16 years old. And I was in, it was my, my second or third time ever seeing a doctor without my parents. And I had driven myself to the office. And my doctor just asked me, um, she said, it's now part of our standard screening to ask if you've ever had feelings of suicide or depression, anxiety. And I said, yes. And it was really the first time I had ever admitted to myself that I had even felt those feelings, let alone to another person. And I just broke down. Like I bawled my eyes out. And that cry felt so good because it was like a release of all this, this stigma that I had been carrying onto and wearing like a backpack on my shoulders. And it had just gotten so heavy that finally I had to take that backpack off and let someone else help me carry it. So I think that's... Um, QPR training. Um, if you guys have resources for listeners, like if you have resources to go out and get QPR training, there's plenty of nonprofits all over mountain towns that do provide that. Most of them are providing it for free at this point. That training can really save a life. Um, and then the other thing is just using grounding techniques with people too. Um, you guys both go to therapists, but one of my favorite grounding techniques for folks who aren't enrolled in therapy yet is um, basically just a, a five senses technique. So you use, you close your eyes, exactly, and then you this try and notice. Shit. Yes, yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> try and notice five things, you know, with, with each of your five senses, five things you hear, five things you smell, five things you even taste in the air, five things that you feel, notice your body position, are my arms extruded, are my legs bent or straight, is the weight of myself in the chair laying on my bed, is it crushing, is it affecting my ability to breathe, just noticing those things. Another really good technique that can be really good to get someone to calm down and really um, <clears throat> bring their consciousness, I think, to like a uh, a calmer level is to just literally have them lay on their back or sit with their feet on the ground and to flex and relax every muscle in the body, starting at the toes and moving all the way to the, the top of the head um, in the scalp, eyebrows area, but starting at the toes and trying to touch every muscle. Um, and you'll be really surprised for folks who try that, um, just how effective that can be. Also, if you're someone who struggles with falling asleep, 
that's like one of the best ways to fall asleep ever, at least for me. But I actually learned about that, like clenching every muscle through your body thing when I was in middle school. And it was something that I use consistently because sleep disorders are also common comorbidities with autism. Uh, so are like a multitude of mental health diagnoses. Um, but I, I struggle with sleep. I have dreams that could be full length cinematic films like they're fucked I wake up and have a debrief with my boyfriend every morning and I have night terrors and like I know Renee has night terrors and like it's wild up there so that like clenching thing does authentically work because it, it activates um your your body awareness and it kind of pulls you back from being in that mental space I do want to say with the five senses thing if this uh tool is to be used with like neurodivergent people who are hyposensitive or hypersensitive to different sensory inputs um, making sure that the person that is there to kind of, you know, get them on that is aware of those hyposensitivities sensitivities and hypersensitivities because exposure to the wrong input can actually make it worse, which is important to recognize. Absolutely. That's a really great facet. Nice catch there. It's okay. It's hard. I'm like still unpacking my internalized ableism <laughs> with stuff. So <laughs> it's a vibe. Um, but yeah, those are all really good tools. We'll definitely have to do like a good resource section in our show notes for this one Yes, for things people can do and resources that people can read places that like places people can go if they are in a crisis, if they know someone in a crisis. And uh, that's something that we can put together after this conversation is done. I would love to chat a little bit more about the movie and like, even just like mountain in my mind, like where does this name come from? Yeah, I think the mountain in my mind for uh, the sake of the film and for myself is that that big, sharp, jagged peak that no one else can see, but that I have to climb every day to just get out of bed and to go do anything. And everything is made on top of that peak at my decisions throughout the day, even if it's windy or snowy or icy or cold, no matter what, that really that the mountain that's in my mind is my my own mental health and managing that and showing people that it can be managed is is the mountain in my mind. And so the film was it started actually as a new schoolers thread. Um, way this oh is dear about, god i know i know <laughs> i know i was I know. not i was yeah. not expecting this no that is no like, new schoolers is like the peak of masculinity on the internet and ski culture so so go look up carry on <laughs> yeah go go look up the thread i think it was it's titled ski companies and mental health and i basically just did what i was kind of preaching to you guys earlier about which is i put my story out there and i just put a little ask at the last sentence that just said is do you guys know or is are there any companies out there that have have personal experience with suicide loss or mental illness and would be willing to at least come together for a conversation of um, how we can strategize to make um, the ski community a more accepting place? And I like you, you got to go read the thread because people that were like regular contributors to like you say like just masculinity and just being toxic, they left incredible comments and they just said, yes, like, yes, yes, yes. And all these brands started stepping up and reaching out. Um, and that's really how it was born. And after that, it kind of progressed forward. So I, I realized very quickly that this was going to be more than I had expected. And I was like, kind of thinking like, how do I communicate all the stuff that I'm feeling into something that isn't 
doesn't feel stale that like people want to listen to and and or watch and i was like oh what if we made a movie out of it and so it kind of became this idea of like how how do you structure it and all this um uh, more detail work which i'll save for folks who watch the movie you can see all the structure on that one um but basically what i did was reached out to and had reached out to a bunch of brands and said if they're asking if there were any athletes that were interested um in being interviewed and then going skiing afterwards about their um struggles with mental health and it was like every single brand had at least five athletes that was like yes i'll do it and so what i did was tried to strategize in the film with about eight people that I felt like could best were really, really incredible communicators and could best um, communicate and represent the, the audience. So the goal was that each person, you know, as a viewer of the film, that you could watch the film and at least identify with one person in there and, and say, well, if they can do it, so can I. And so those eight people lived kind of all over the place. We ended up filming in Montana, Idaho, Utah, Colorado, Nevada, California, Oregon, Washington, and British Columbia. Um, I did 36,000 miles of driving, uh, a lot of it solo. I had to put a new engine in my car uh, because of all this. Uh, countless flights, too. Um, and we were able to come up with what is now a mountain in my mind, which is a 55-minute feature-length film um, that has people telling their raw stories kind of juxtaposed to some really incredible skiing and it's not just limited I also wanted to make sure I didn't like just make like a park skiing film or like, a big mountain skiing film or a backcountry film whatever I wanted to make sure that the market was open again so that people could identify with someone in the film um, so there's everything from like urban skiing all the way to ski mountaineering on uh, 50 classics. So it's kind of all over the place with with the types of skiing in it, um, which was very intentional on on my part and and the talent that we selected and locations that we chose. Um, yeah. So that is kind of the mountain in my mind. And we're um, while this is being recorded, we're kind of still in the middle of the premiere uh, cycle. But when this um, drops, it'll be towards the end of that. Uh, and the film will be getting ready to make its debut. Um, so yeah, we stopped. We've got premieres. We've done Bozeman, a couple shows in Steamboat, and then Boulder on Friday, Bend on Saturday. Next week, three shows in Salt Lake City, and then another show in Denver, and then um, a couple more shows after that. One in Driggs, Idaho, in the Teton Valley, and then in uh, Lake Tahoe, California, as well. Yeah, it's a lot there. Um, I like the the mountain in my mind kind of metaphor that you have for me. Like I like to refer to it as invisible crashes because for me, sometimes it's, it's what keeps me I'm from sorry, going Renee, I like feel like I need to interject and be like, Jesus, take the wheel because that's like your invisible crash is just like hands free, just freaking poof. And I feel like that's also what happens mentally sometimes. It is. It's like these mental crashes that you have that keep you from skiing one at all or two to your full potential because you're experiencing a basically a yard sale but no one can see it <laughs> that's such anyway. a perfect way to put it i love that a yard sale that, that no one can see that's it's literally my, losing that's my your shit metaphor. you're losing your shit like tumbling <laughs> down the mountain and nobody can see but it's what's happening that's a great metaphor 
Well, and why I like that metaphor is that if you crash, literally, you have have to take time to recover and to heal your body from that crash. But when you crash invisibly, you still need time to recover and to heal yourself from that crash. But because people can't see it, it just like feels like you're missing out, like you should be out there, like you know, th that's where a lot of the stigma comes in. And that's, that's my own metaphor that I use. I, I wrote an article for Forecastsky last fall, it came out and it was titled Invisible Crashes and kind of spoke about my anxiety there dealing with a uh, backcountry fatality that I was involved in and, and how that all played out in my season. So that's why I was wondering what your, where Mountain in My Mind came from, because it's kind of like where invisible crashes are for, for you, Mountain in My Mind or invisible crashes are for me, mountain in my mind is for you, words. <laughs> and then I, I'm glad that you like got into explaining how you got the athletes, because that was one of the questions that I had for you, is where did the athletes come from and how did you find them? Because these are very, very vulnerable stories that people are sharing. And like, how, how would you know that people have these stories to share, which is kind of like how I was wondering how it came about. Interestingly enough, um, so after that, uh, thread was out, I think a lot of people started talking to their friends. And then there was folks who did step up and reach out on their own. And there was no way for me to know uh, that people had struggled. And then I what I did was basically reached out to brand managers and just asked them to ask their athletes. And that actually had two consequences. One, it made these teams start to have a conversation internally, which was a hidden consequence that I didn't anticipate in the beginning, but I think became a really positive thing. Um, because I know now that all those athletes are, or at least did have at least one conversation about their mental health. And what happened was a lot of these brands were had they just sent out an, a blast email to a bunch of athletes said, Hey, listen, there's this guy, John, he's making he wants to make a film about mental health. And there, you'd be shocked how many people were just like wanted to tell their story. And I think that for a lot of people, telling their story was almost cathartic, like, and, and very healing and, and almost like a part of their journey was to give back and to try and inspire others so that they could help others um, kind of work through their pain. And there was a lot of altruism involved there. And that's something I'm really grateful for with all the folks who were involved was taking that risk and answering such a big ask and putting themselves out there. Um, and it was at, at least so far in the premiere tour, it's been incredibly well perceived and um, yeah, just really, really grateful for all the folks who did step up because that was, that was a step that they had to take on their own. That wasn't me. That's huge. I think like even that speaks to the prevalence. They say it right. Yes. I'm so proud of you. Thank you. I'm evolving. Um, uh, the prevalence <laughs> of mental health and like, I mean, mental health is such like a broad umbrella, but there's like addiction, different uh, disorders. I hate that word. Um, comorbidities, illnesses, like there's so many different things that are coupled under that umbrella. But it shows that, you know, the ski industry is not all powdays and bluebirds, sunshine, goggle tans and shredding with the boys doing like you know, barbecues in the back of your truck and shotguns on the chairlift or this one time Renee had pizza in her backpack, like a full box. It was iconic. Um, and Hawaiian shirt, one of my favorite photos of you, but it's not all that. Okay. Oh, that made Jerry of the day. FYI. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> 
Iconic. Love it. Fantastic. Um, but yeah, it's not all that. And like having those conversations is critical and also seeing like businesses and like, you know, these cultural leaders, technically they shape the culture, even though people might not realize it. Um, being able to have that conversation with their athletes and seeing like public figures step up, like that's a huge shift for sure. So we, congratulations. Thank you. We even had like brand managers that were like, can I tell my story? Or I would have a meeting with them and they were like, so I reached out to all these athletes, but first I want to tell you why, why this caught my eye and why it was so important. And a, a few of them had never told their stories. Um, one who I've talked to before and is comfortable with me telling a story is Todd Heath. Todd is the uh, owner and founder of Bomb Snow Magazine. And he and I, I reached, I had reached him and said, hey, is there any potential for just some guidance? Because he's he knows everyone around town. He knows a lot of people in the industry. And I just wanted to kind of formulate some of those connections and didn't, didn't want money or anything from him. Just literally wanted to sit down and talk with him. And he ended up opening up to me. And you can listen. There's another. He's started a podcast since then, too, called Influence This. He um, opens up in that for the first time publicly. And um, I was one of the first people outside of you know, his, his family and very close friends that he told that his mother actually passed by suicide. And that was the reason that the project was so close to home for him. And so I think, uh, it resonated with so many people because like you say, it is so prevalent. Um, it's, it's impossible or almost impossible statistically at this point to, to be, to not know somebody or know of somebody who's died by suicide. Um, whether it's a close friend, a sibling, a family member, uh, a distant friend or an acquaintance or a friend of a friend. Um, I think it's just so prevalent that, and, and and despite its prevalence, people have been very afraid to talk about it, which just falls again back to that, that problem with stigma. And um, I think that's really where at this stage of the game for tackling mental health, that's where we have to do better. Um, we had I did an interview with a newspaper out here a few weeks ago, and he said, "How did you basically make this movie movie possible, and how do you see fixing mental health crisis?" And I said, "I think the answer to those two things is almost the same that it takes a village to to put together a ski movie about this these kind of heavy topics, but it's also going to take a village to to solve the crises that we face in this country today, so that we really do have to team up together and that our our collective thoughts and destigmatizing is is super super valuable but um there's another quote from leo tolstoy that uh basically reads um every man wants to or every person wants to change the world but nobody wants to change themselves so i think we have to look inwards first and then reach outwards yeah 100 percent. um part of looking inwards is going to therapy my dudes should go to therapy snaps snaps for that yeah and on on that note too um i have a question for you john while you're filming this movie and people are sharing all of these vulnerable stories and their own traumas with you and you coming from having traumas in in your family's life and, and and in your personal life how do you protect your mental health while you're making a movie that hits so deep like this yeah, absolutely. I continued to see my therapist the whole time. I also, uh, fortunately, was getting lots of exercise. So I was getting lots of dopamine going in my brain. And then I'm also on anti antidepressant medications, which really helped me. Um, and it kind of became, um, 
it's a question I get a lot about that question specifically is like, how do you do all that without, with respect to your own trauma? And the best way that I can describe it is, um, the only way to, for me to make meaning and leave a a lasting impact for my brother's life is to turn his tragedy into triumph. And that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. And I, I think is what allowed me to protect myself. And, and when we were, you know, on site filming this stuff, um, we had talked extensively on the phone or in person with every single athlete. So I knew what to expect when they told me, but that's not to say that we didn't cry. There was plenty of interviews where both of us cried and we had to stop. Like the movie has about two and a half, three and a half minutes of interview per person. But that was like closer to 40 minutes to two hours for most people. So these were really long form um, and uh, just really wonderful conversations, but they were really powerful too. And and like Forrest Coot's story, for example, and I'm not going to ruin it. He went through very, very similar thing to me. That was super triggering for me to sit down and listen to um, just because some of the details were so similar to my own. But what matters, like I said, is, is changing and saving someone else's life is so worth it. And to turn that tragedy into triumph, if I can help one other person, inspire just one person to tell somebody that they're struggling or to ask a friend who is struggling if they're struggling and get them help, it's all worth it right there. Like that struggling, I can always go back and see my therapist and I know I'll be okay. I've got a great support network. Not everybody has that option. Definitely. I kind of want to like pause on... um one thing you said there around triggers and trauma, because like some of the things that we've talked about today about asking people hard questions, sometimes talking about trauma, it, it should be up to the person's discretion if they're ready to share it. Um, and sometimes sharing your story can cause a, a PTSD flashback or it can cause a trauma related reaction, um, which is also something to note. So like One thing I'm trying to get better at is like, you know, like, I don't know, Renee and I have had it a couple times where like I call her to talk about something because I'm distressed and she's like, I just don't have space for this right now. Like, I'm really sorry. And like, that's valid too, because her mental health matters. And if she doesn't have the space to kind of take on my stuff, like that's okay. And like, if it's a real crisis, like a real crisis, like I do have um, a support network and I know that Renee would help me through that if something really serious was happening. Um, But at the same time, like uh, with trauma and with PTSD, sometimes sharing something can cause an adverse effect in somebody, which is always something to consider. So I think like if anybody listening to this wants to kind of take on some of these uh, disruptive questions to start shaking up the norm and get people to open up, maybe also educate yourself on PTSD and the different types of PTSD, trauma and triggers, because PTSD is not just for veterans. It can also come from social consequences. Complex PTSD is from a lifetime of compounded trauma, which is what I've been diagnosed with. Um, so educating yourself on how to handle traumatic reactions, uh, to different stimuli and input is also beneficial if you're going to be having these hard conversations. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. And that's, yeah, the triggers and the trauma are huge. Um, and I, I really, I just echo what you said, just please go do, do your research on that stuff first. Um, I know that's, uh, it's prevalent in my life too. Um, I've received similar diagnoses and 
Um, it's one of those things now that I'm really careful about how I talk about some of those things. Like, for example, for in the film, um, to bring it kind of back to that, there are no graphic details in there whatsoever. The reason for that, I didn't want people to get to to get triggered while they were sitting in a theater or even worse, sitting at home alone watching this movie on their TV or their laptop, whatever it may be, and not have feel like they had the tools to to address that so leaving out like if you are going to tell your story um or ask questions just do your best to uh, this is just a starting point obviously but uh, omit those those details for so I'll, I'll use my example again um myself um asking like i would never say how jack died by suicide i would just say jack died by suicide um and that's actually a really important distinction um so keep that in mind yeah, I love that. I love that, you know, you can talk about the incident without giving graphic details, um, because those details can be the most triggering aspect because it, it, I mean, shit, I've had to do that in therapy where like I sit there and they're like, you need to remember this. I was like, what? Like, okay. But Good old it's EMDR. Like, you need a therapist present for those <laughs> moments because goddamn. Um, <laughs> yeah, or ART or even CBT. I've had to do that. So Therapy's cool, my guys. And also, you know, like I'm we're talking about trauma and everything like that. You do not need to experience a traumatic event to go to therapy. Therapy is beneficial because it just it makes you more aware of yourself. Um, you know, like I, I wanted to look up those statistics uh, about autism and suicide while we were talking. And there was this one section that I just found just to make sure I was like spitting the right stuff. But 63% of people um, that were uh participated in this study who are autistic have a lifetime history of anxiety and then underneath that it says note how significant anxiety is it's not dealing with uh suicidal thoughts or behaviors uh necessarily because they're depressed so it's purely anxiety there there's not even an explicit wish wish to die oh my god an explicit wish to die sorry this is a really bad time to stumble um but a profound desire to not have to deal with our stress anymore so that's the biggest, like, you know, like stressful situa situations, the constant pressure of things, like you don't have to experience a traumatic event to not be okay. And it can be very simple. It could be needing tools to help regulate yourself, benefits your relationships. It gives you a deeper understanding of your behaviors because nothing that you do, nothing that you say, and no single reaction that you have is on its own. It is all based off of associations in your brain and that is backed up by science, period. So go to therapy. End of rant. And on a simpler note, I okay, would say... thank you, Renee. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> no, what you said was great. <laughs> but like on a simpler note, I would say that there are like a huge bulk of my sessions where my therapist just helps me make difficult life decisions or difficult conversations that I know that I need to have, and I just don't know how to approach them or how or like if my opinion on something or my thought process if it needs like more fleshing out before before I approach the situation like if I'm yes. frustrated with something just to talk it out and then figure okay now how what's my next step how do I do with this how do I have a conversation with this person how do I resolve this conflict what do I need from this relationship or from work or whatever single things are causing me stress in my life? It doesn't necessarily have to be a traumatic thing. Like I just get stressed out by work sometimes because I work in an emergency room and there's a lot of there's a lot of meat there that you have to deal with. A lot of meat? 
why did you have to reference it like <laughs> i mean you're yeah. not wrong but damn. there is but yeah and sometimes it's just like dealing with relationships that i have like interpersonally in my life and and difficult conversations that need to that need to happen to maintain my own boundaries or what have you and it you know, I don't know. Therapy's hot. That's all I'm saying. I, I think hot. I was trying to make that simple and I don't know if I did. No, you did great. Also, when your <laughs> therapist looks you in the eyes and is like, I don't like judgment words, you know that, but I'm fucking proud of you. You're like, thank you. Yep. I pay you $200 an hour, but that feels so good. <laughs> this is the validation mom could never give me. Like, damn. <laughs> yeah. No, no. You guys both make great points. I think in, in a single sentence, a therapist and the benefit of therapy is you get to talk to a person whose job is to to take what, sh- what you are telling them and to mirror it back to you in a way that allows you to improve your life. And you don't have to have, you could be living a perfect life, but you can always improve. And that's just a growth mindset. Yes. And one thing I want to say about finding a therapist, which is critical, you are paying them for a service. They're like a freaking hairdresser, okay? They went to school for this shit. They have a business. And if you do not vibe with them, you do not owe them anything. And you can do a 15-minute call with most of them to see if you vibe. And I have had situations where, like, I am so happy I got that 15-minute call because this is somebody that is literally in a position of power to help you with your mental health. And you need to make sure that you have someone that you feel safe with, that you feel represents your experience. As you said, like, marginalized groups and minority groups don't tend to have the right representation in this field. It's also applicable to autistic people and neurodivergent people. But like a good example for me was like, I just found out that I was probably on the spectrum and I was seeking an autism diagnosis and I was so burnt out. I could not function. I couldn't take care of myself. I couldn't do school. I couldn't leave the house. I couldn't shower. I couldn't eat. And I was like, what the fuck is going on? Like, this is the worst I have ever been. And I had a 15 minute call with this therapist. And within four minutes of talking to her, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm autistic. I've been researching it for a couple months. I'm seeking a diagnosis. I just really need some skills and tools to help me get through right now because I'm not okay. And she was like, you're not autistic. You probably have borderline personality disorder within four minutes of fucking talking to me. Do you have any idea how critical that is? And for me to go into a session with her, she would be twisting every single experience that I had and is in a position of power to make me doubt myself. Um, And like, I just, I was like, yeah, like, I think I want to maybe interview like one of the other therapists, blah, blah, blah. And the second I got into the interview with that therapist and realized she was sick, I told her how shitty her boss is and how like fucking horrible and almost malpractice that is. Are you fucked? Like, I'm sorry. It made me really fucking angry, but that's like, you don't owe them anything. It's okay to shop around, you know, just, yeah, get out there. Therapy's dope and you don't owe them anything. If you don't like it, you can walk away. Yeah. Renee, are you just you're nodding? It's I'm nodding. Uh, I took my, my thing off mute and I'm just nodding. Like, nodding. Yes, I, I, I went to go do the same thing. Yeah. I, like, it's I'll like, leave it on mute. That was like a, a a heavy rant, but it's you know an important thing to consider because I feel like I don't know people are people. Like I met an autistic person and I told my therapist I was like I met another autistic person the other day, but I didn't really like them. And she was like, oh, and I was like, I realize I don't have to like them just because we're both autistic. She was like, you do not. And it's the same thing with therapists. Yeah. <laughs> so- That's so true. And this is Tori's oversharing in a nutshell. Prime I just got really red and sweaty. I'm very red and sweaty right now. I apologize. Okay. <laughs> okay. Anyway. Moving on. Moving on. <laughs> 
Um, as we kind of start to wind down this interview, I'm wondering what kind of next products for you do you have? Obviously, you're still in the process of premiering this movie and like you've put a lot of time into it. But as you're looking forward into 2023, which is coming up pretty soon here, like, do you have anything in the works that you're really excited about or things you're going to move forward in your um, your own nonprofit, et cetera? Yeah, absolutely. Um, for 2023, and these things aren't set in stone quite yet, but they are definitely going to happen to some degree, uh, we'd like to make another film. Um, it'll be slightly shorter and involve a little bit more... Um, not acting per se, but more like scenarios. So instead of sitting somebody down in front of a camera and doing an interview, um, we might uh, kind of introduce a little bit more dramatic um, appeal to the back end of the movie to kind of demonstrate what it's like to be a person who suffers from mental illness, but also is super, super in love with skiing. So they'll all stay super ski themed for next year. And then another thing that I'm super excited about, um, and this might not be a next year, but the year after thing, uh, like I said, due to some floating insurance pieces on this one, is uh, doing some on snow uh, community events um, and uh, try and get every state in the West uh, and to get people people basically to come down to the the base of a mountain or on the skin track, whatever it may be at the trailhead and to set up some booths and have therapists there, but invite folks who are really, really passionate about mental health, or maybe even folks who want to learn more and about mental health in the ski industry specifically and connect them up to try and form a little bit more of a community. And then culminating that with some sort of like a community ski event afterwards where everyone goes and skis a a shoot or a couloir together or something like that, or even as something as simple as a rail jam um, in a in a downtown where uh, the winner takes home ten thousand dollars and five free therapy sessions, and we give away some therapy sessions. That sort of a thing um, is, I think, would be kind of a unique way. <laughs> that to... is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that is such a great giveaway. I'd be like, let's go. That's like <laughs> that's freaking valuable. Okay, <laughs> it is. It is. Um, but yeah, so moving forward to next year, just want to kind of continue the conversation uh, via another film and then doing some on snow events uh, that would be, uh, I think, really cool to kind of create a community of folks who are just as passionate about suicide prevention and mental health as the three of us are. That's awesome. Um, and you, you have a few showings for Mountain In My Mind still coming up. And then where will people be able to find the film once it does drop? So I guess on that note, you could also kind of plug your own channels for this so people know where to follow to, to be able to know when they can watch it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a great way to keep up with us is just via Instagram. It's just mountain in my mind. No spaces, dashes, or anything. Just simple. Uh one thing together and then that's a great way to kind of keep up with where we're at if we're doing giveaways um that sort of a thing and to kind of uh, get to know some of the athletes a little bit better but the film itself is going to be dropping on our youtube channel which is also just at mountain in my mind no spaces or anything on that one too um and so it should be fairly simple to find uh for folks so yeah, that's kind of the two places that um, that we do things. And I'm not going to self-channel plug because I honestly don't use my Instagram very much and I don't enjoy it. So go follow Mountain in my mind. I love the honesty there. I love it. I love it. 
social media. Ugh, I work in social media right now and I'm just like, I don't want to post for myself ever <laughs> right now. <laughs> do you, do you have a website or, or anything else for your nonprofit as well so that people can, can look that up? Yeah, absolutely. Go check out our nonprofit website. It's www.jackstrong17.org. Awesome. Um, yeah. So that's another good resource for us. And there, we're on Instagram as well, jackstrong17. Sick. Also, not sure if this was mentioned, but um, when does the movie officially drop and where is it being released? Yeah. So we're going to do a uh, online. We literally just said that, Tori. Did you? Okay, well, never fucking mind. Excuse me. Um, YouTube. Have... YouTube, December 5th. Okay, we can just cut that out too. I am so sorry. I like made a lot more work for myself. I guess I'm doing the cuts. Um... <laughs> How fun. <laughs> I say we keep it. That's funny. Uh, yeah. Okay, yeah, fine. We'll keep that. <laughs> you don't have to. It wouldn't be wrapping up the show without a light dumpster fire, you know? It's just like... Welcome We're just out life. here faking it till we make it, baby. Uh, okay. Thank yeah. you for coming on the show today. Um, and yeah, stoked to have this conversation. I know that there's some tough parts probably in there for some people, but thanks for hanging in. Yeah, Thank you. definitely. Thank you guys so much for having me. And for any viewers or listeners out there, um, you can always call or text 988 uh, for help. And they've got, if you or someone you know is struggling. Um, so yeah. Let's end it with that. Awesome.